You are listening to the audio from Grace Bible Church. This audio message is a recording from our Sunday morning worship service. We hope you enjoy. Well, good morning, Grace. I, uh, I have to say I, I'm just so proud of, of the, the team that went down, the missions team, and want to applaud Pastor Dan and all the leaders who, who brought that trip together and led that trip, and I think they deserve a round of applause as well for their leadership. Thank you. And of course, I had a vested interest in this trip, not only because I'm a pastor here at the church and I care about these people, but my daughter was on the trip, and, uh, and I know she had a good time. Because periodically throughout the week, actually a lot throughout the week, I would text her. You know, like, hey, Kylie, how's it going? Yeah, would be my response. <laughs> how was your day? Good. What was so good about it? Crickets, 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 crickets. So I know she was busy having fun, and I do not take that personally at all. Even though when she said she didn't want to come home and she wanted to stay there, I said, really, deep down, she wanted to be home with her daddy. That's how I'm going to interpret that. But anyway, I'm really glad... Um, that they had such a great week, and I'm so proud of this team. So anyway, if you guys want to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it's page 956 in the Pew Bible in front of you if you don't have your own copy of Scripture. Um, I want to encourage you to turn there. So church, a few weeks ago, I had, I had to boldly go where many men have gone before, but no man ever wants to be. The DMV. You see, I needed to get my license renewed, and of course, there was a long line of people in front of me, because there's never not a long line of people. It's the most inefficient, uh, you know, thing out there. Anyway, so uh, as I sat there waiting, I did some people watching. What else are you going to do? You're sitting in the DMV, so I did some people watching. And based upon what I saw, I couldn't help but wonder if most of the people there would have preferred sitting in prison over sitting in, at PennDOT. I mean, do you know what I mean? For those of you that have been at the DMV, it is just a misery. Nobody, nobody wants to be there. Nobody's excited. Yes, my license gets to be renewed. I get to go sit at the DMV. Nobody wants to be there. Now, in all fairness, there were a few people who were happy to be at the DMV. There were a few. The one bright spot of the day was actually seeing several happy teenagers walk out with their driver's licenses uh, for the very first time. It reminded me of the first time I took my driver's license test. Um, actually, it reminded me of the second time I took my driver's license test because I failed the first time. Um, but nevertheless, I remember um, there was just no better feeling in the world than walking out of the DMV with my driver's license in hand and my newfound freedom. However, it wasn't too long after getting my license that I learned that my newfound freedom came with limitations. I learned this lesson the hard way when in high school I got pulled over on my way to golf practice, of all places. You see, evidently I had lost track of my speed and my awareness of the road, so much so that I passed by and cut off a state trooper going 75 and a 45 without using my blinker. Uh, yeah. So uh, now, I, I, after, thankfully, after receiving some very strong words, I mean, I, he, the, the officer straight up was calling me a murderer. I mean, that's how bad it was. But after, after some really strong words and a very stern warning, thankfully, uh, the trooper left me off with just a warning. But it was a hard lesson learned. In fact, as he was leaving, the trooper sarcastically said, I hope your golf game is better than your driving skills. <laughs> and I should have kept my mouth shut, to which I sheepishly replied, well, not really, officer. <laughs> Church, true freedom has limitations. And when we operate within those limitations, we get to enjoy all the benefits that come with liberty. 
However, when we operate outside those limitations by breaking the law or jeopardizing the well-being of other people, which I had other people in my car, uh, that's when things go awry. And this overarching principle is true in all areas of life, including our spiritual life. You know, contrary to popular belief, the Christian life is a liberating life. It's a liberating life. Galatians 5.1 says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. You see, when someone places their faith in Jesus, they're free from the power and the penalty of sin. And as a result, they're given the ability to freely live for Jesus and enjoy the blessings of following after him and the blessings of eternal life one day. Amen? However, there's another type of freedom that believers get to enjoy. We call this Christian liberty. Now, Christian liberty is the freedom to engage in social activities that are not expressly forbidden in Scripture. It's freedom to engage in activities that are spiritually neutral, so to speak. However, enjoying Christian liberty doesn't mean that life is a free-for-all. God has given us limitations for our well-being, for the well-being of others, and for his glory. And so this morning, as we continue our study in 1 Corinthians, we're going to find Paul providing some helpful insight on how to exercise Christian liberties. And it's through our study that we're going to learn that the primary purpose for having liberty in Christ is to bring honor and glory to Christ. Does that sound like a plan? All right, let's pray one more time. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to open it up and learn from it. And I pray, Father, that the truth that I speak today would be your truth and your truth alone. And God, that you would speak through me and I would get out of your way. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in today's church, there's no shortage of passionate opinions and convictions over exercising of Christian liberties. You see, on one hand, there are Christians who vigorously and unapologetically uh, promote exercising their Christian liberties. And on the other hand, there are Christians who vigorously and unapologetically oppose exercising Christian liberties. And in either case, the results are not good. You see, the former are at risk of living careless, undisciplined lifestyles. And the latter are at risk of living rigid, legalistic lifestyles. And God doesn't want us to be part of either one of those tribes. You see, as believers, we shouldn't misuse our Christian liberties, nor should we unnecessarily neglect our Christian liberties. It's all about operating within the biblical limits that God has given us. Now, some of the hot-button issues that divide believers today in regard to Christian liberties include things like social drinking, trick-or-treating, tattoos and piercings, smoking, listening to secular music, gambling recreationally, watching certain movies, and so forth. There's a whole bunch of things, right? But the prevailing question is, what are Christians to do in regard to these spiritually gray areas? Well, the Corinthian believers had a similar question, but a totally different hot-button issue. You see, in Corinth, the hot-button issue revolved around whether or not it was appropriate for a Christian to eat food that was sacrificed to idols. You see, Corinth was one of the many centers of idol worship in the ancient world. And as part of their worship, an animal would be brought to a pagan priest to be sacrificed. However, only certain parts of the animal were burned. Typically, it was the legs, the fat, and the internal organs. The rest of the meat, uh, which was usually the best pieces of the meat, were either uh, consumed during a public festival, taken home to be eaten in private, or sold at the public marketplace. Well, this posed a dilemma for believers in Corinth. You see, since they lived in a very heathen society, just like we do today, chances were extremely high that if they bought meat uh, in the marketplace or if they were invited dinner guests to someone else's home, 
they would be consuming meat that was sacrificed to a false god or an idol. And so for some believers, it was like a non-issue, right? This is not a, it, meat is meat, right? So some believers, that, that was their, their, their mind frame. However, for others, especially those who were recently saved out of this pagan lifestyle, it was like a crisis of conscience for them. See, they didn't want to buy or eat this meat if it was associated with their previous pagan lives. And so evidently, there must have been some debate and disagreement among the Corinthian believers on how to handle this situation. And, and not knowing what to do, they actually wrote Paul a letter asking for his thoughts on the matter. And so found within today's text is Paul's response. So let's read the entire uh, chapter 8. It's only 13 verses, and then we'll spend some time breaking it down. Follow along with me. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know all of us possess knowledge. And this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through him are all things, and through him we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we're no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Church, in Pennsylvania, we have a law. We have a law that states that unless otherwise marked, you're allowed to turn right on red. In other words, you have the liberty to turn right at your discretion. However, this law comes with certain limitations. You see, you can only turn right on red when there's no oncoming traffic. If you turn right on red while cars are coming your way, not only are you going to endanger yourself, but you're going to endanger the well-being of other people. Therefore, you need to use discernment, right? Now, by the way, if you're up here at the light at sheets, this is my biggest pet peeve. If you're at the light at sheets and you could turn right on red and there's nobody coming and you don't turn right, you make me upset. Okay, that's all I'm going to say. If I'm behind you, you make me a little upset. That's all I'm going to say. Well, anyway, a similar principle applies uh, when it comes to exercising Christian liberties. In other words, just because you can exercise them doesn't mean you should. It's all about using discernment according to the situation at hand. I have broken down today's passage into three headers regarding Christian liberties. Let's begin by looking at the first. Uh, number one, the problem with Christian liberty. Look again at verses one through three. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Church, we all know people who are know-it-alls, right? We've got those people in our life that are know-it-alls. You see, a know-it-all is someone who has an opinion about everything and believes they're right about everything. In fact, know-it-alls tend to be so stuck in their own point of views that they'll quickly dismiss or ignore other people's point of views. They also tend to be people who are overconfident, egotistical, 
and arrogant. Now stop it, because you guys are thinking about those people right now in your head, specific people, and you shouldn't be thinking about them, all right? But anyway, know-it-alls can be found pretty much everywhere, right? And sadly, even in the church. A Christian know-it-all is someone who has correct knowledge about God's word, but they fail to apply it in a God-honoring way. Well, in some respects, these are the believers that Paul is addressing in today's passage. You see, Paul begins by acknowledging that the mature believers in Corinth had correct knowledge when it came to food sacrifice to idols. In other words, they were correct in their understanding that pagan gods and idols weren't real. They were correct in their understanding that food sacrifice to idols was still just food. They were correct in their understanding that eating it wouldn't contaminate them spiritually or have a negative impact on their Christian lives whatsoever. The problem was that even though these believers may have been correct in their doctrine, they were weak in applying it in a loving way. They gave no regard to the consciences of the weaker believers in Christ. Their knowledge made them arrogant and selfish. And so it's for this reason, Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Church, you know what knowledge does? Knowledge gives us a big head, but love gives us a big heart. And when it comes to Christian liberties, you can't have one without the other. You need to have balance. You see, knowledge without love makes us arrogant, and love without knowledge makes us ignorant. You've got to have both. And so the mature believers in Corinth, they may have been efficient in knowledge, but they were deficient in love. Instead of considering the spiritual interests of their brothers and sisters in Christ, they were only concerned with themselves. And so Paul straightens them out by reminding them that when it comes to exercising their Christian liberties, they must be motivated by a love for God and for others. 1 John 4, 7 through 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And so the overarching point is that it's quite possible to do the right thing the wrong way. In other words, you can have all the correct doctrine in the world, but if it's not demonstrated in a sensitive, loving way, if it doesn't take into consideration the needs of your brothers and sisters in, uh, in Christ around you, then it becomes problematic. Paul continues, look at verses 4 through 6. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, indeed there are many gods and many lords, talking about all the false gods and idols, right? He says, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, to whom all things are all things and through whom we exist. You know, here in America, the idea of physically worshiping idols and false gods is a relatively foreign thing, right? But it's more of a, of a conception here than it is a custom. However, there, in many other parts of the world, it's still a very common practice. In fact, there are huge statues and ornate temples that are still in existence in our world today. And millions of people will flock to them, bringing gifts and burning incense and offering to their gods. For example... Hinduism is especially known for its worship of idols. In fact, excuse me, the Hindu religion has over 330 million gods. 330 million gods. That's a lot of trips to the temple, right? Now, as followers of Christ, we know that there's only one God. There's no God but one. 
And we know that idols are nothing more than mammal or man-made relics. It could be mammals, I guess, but man-made relics uh, of a depraved religious system. We know this to be true. In fact, we agree with the psalmist when he wrote in Psalm 115. He said, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. And those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. We agree with that as believers. We know that to be true. As believers, we know the truth about idols. They're nothing. There's no there there. And so therefore, eating meats offered to them is really inconsequential, right? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. You see, Paul wanted the Corinthian believers and us to consider the scenario from a different perspective, different point of view. You see, I may know there's no there there. And you may know there's no there there. But there are other believers, especially new believers, who may not know there's no there there. Look at verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through a former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. You see, not all believers, especially mature believers, are mature. Excuse me, not all believers, especially new believers, are mature in their understanding and knowledge of God's truth. For some newly saved Corinthian believers, their past pagan lives were still like fresh on their minds. And their faith hadn't matured enough to understand what the more mature Corinthian believers already understood about idolatry. And so they don't want to participate in anything that was related to their former way of life that would tempt them to fall back into their former pagan practices. Well, church, when it comes to exercising Christian liberties, we need to be sensitive to these types of believers. We need to make sure that in exercising our Christian liberties, we're not putting a weaker believer into a position where they're going to violate their conscience. One commentator put it this way, he said, a defiled conscience is defiled faith. If partaking in a certain action violates your own conscience or has the potential to violate the conscience of another brother or sister in Christ, we should choose to exercise love over liberty. That was Paul's overarching point in, in these first couple of sections. And I like what Galatians 5.13 says. Paul, Paul wrote this in Galatians 5. He said, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Are you with me so far? This leads us to the second header, the prescription for Christian liberty. Look at verses 8 and 9. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. When I was in college... I went to New York City with a group of Christian friends. And within our group was a newly saved girl who had struggled with alcoholism in the past. And so, well, we all decided to go to this fancy restaurant. And a few people in the group, exercising their Christian liberty, uh, ordered some wine or maybe a beer. I can't remember all what they ordered. Now, even though their action wasn't sinful in and of itself, it lacked a loving sensitivity toward the weaker believer in their midst. You see, they failed to take into consideration that their actions, though technically okay, could possibly cause the weaker believer to violate their conscience and fall back into alcoholism. And now listen, in their defense, I know that what they did was not intentional. It wasn't an intention, oh, we want to intentionally, you know, cause peer pressure or cause this person to stumble. 
They didn't intentionally act in a way they knew uh, would be hurtful to this or, or possibly hurtful to this new believer. But nevertheless, the principle still applies. As believers, we're called to take care when exercising Christian liberties, meaning we're, we must beware or be careful or be on guard. Another way of, of putting it is to keep on seeing. The idea here is minding your surroundings. Church, it's important to understand that the onus isn't on the weaker believer who doesn't know better. The onus is on the mature believer who does. In fact, the mature believer who lacks sensitivity in exercising their Christian liberties isn't only in the wrong, they're actually held responsible for causing the weaker believer to sin. Look at verses 8 or 10 through 11. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. You know, when my children were younger, I wouldn't allow them to, to use knives or play with tools or go near the streets or cook on the oven or go near a fire or do anything that's going to cause them physical harm. For obvious reasons, right? However, as they grew older, these restrictions were gradually removed. Now, I still won't let my boys go near a fire because I know what's going to happen if they do. Kidding, of course. But, but, but why, why remove them as they get older? Well, because with growth and maturity comes better discernment and less of a threat of danger. And so in many ways, this actually describes the Christian conscience. One commentator put it this way. He said, the conscience is God's doorkeeper to keep us out of places where we could be harmed. And as we mature, conscience allows us to go more places and do more things because we have more spiritual strength and better spiritual judgment. You see, mature believers should never attempt to expand a weaker believer's conscience too soon. In other words, you shouldn't give matches to a child. If we who are more mature haphazardly put a weaker believer into a harmful or vulnerable position, we're the ones responsible if they get burned. That's what God's saying. That's what Paul's saying. In a parallel passage, Paul wrote in Romans 14, he said, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. Yeah, we get that. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that's going to cause your brother to stumble. You know, there's a, there's a baseball player, Ty Cobb was his name. You guys know Ty Cobb? Some of you guys here? Ty Cobb was also known as the Georgia Peach, and he was widely considered to be one of the greatest baseball players of his time. He spent 22 years as an outfielder with the Detroit Tigers from 1905 to 1926. And now, even though he's famous for his ball-playing skills, there's a darker side of Ty Cobb that makes him infamous. He was known for cleating uh, infielders, stealing signs, and tripping base runners. He, he was a dirty player. He intentionally did everything he could to stifle their progress during the game. Well, Tony Evans said, we, should, we as Christians should not intentionally do anything to harm the spiritual progress of such fellow Christians. We don't want to exercise our knowledge and freedom in such a way that we cause them to stumble. Our Christian liberty may be legitimate in and of itself, but if it causes a weaker brother or sister to fall, we have sinned against them. However, Paul takes it a step further and says, not only did we sin against them, but we're actually sinning against the Lord. Look at verse 12. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. 
And so all this to say, church, God takes very seriously our exercising of Christian liberties. And so therefore, we need to exercise them with caution and discernment. We need to exercise them with sensitivity toward the Lord and toward those around us. We need to mind our surroundings. And this leads us to the last header, the posture of Christian liberty. Just what should the general posture be? Well, Paul uh, is spot on in verse 13. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. You know, church, some Christians, they treat their Christian liberties like a prosperity preacher. And what I mean by that is they want to name them and they want to claim them regardless of what other people think. However, that's not the posture that we're called to. Instead, like Paul, we're called to willingly limit or even completely give up exercising certain Christian liberties if they're going to cause another believer to stumble. We're called to a posture of selflessness. Philippians 2, 3 and 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the posture, right? Now look it. I'm a realist here, friends, so just listen closely. At the end of the day, this is important to understand, at the end of the day, there, even in, in a group this size, in a, in a church like ours, there's always going to be passionate opinions and convictions and disagreements over the exercise of Christian liberties, okay? We're all, there's going to be disagreements. There's going to be some of you guys that land in one camp, and there's going to be some of you guys that land in another camp, and guess what? That's fine. That's okay. We need, as believers, to be adults and agree to disagree in some of these areas. That's okay. However, what's not okay is exercising our Christian liberties in a selfish, sinful way. And so, therefore, we need to be wise and use biblical discernments. You know, I can't, I'm not going to make you happy with every decision I make, and you're not going to make me happy with every decision you make, but if I'm intentionally trying to make you unhappy with the decisions I make, or you're trying to intentionally make me unhappy with the decisions you make, well, guess what? We're sinning against each other. You guys with me? You understand? We're, we're, okay. So, so just keep that in mind. But as I close, as I close, um, it's not my job to tell you what you should or shouldn't do in regards to spiritually neutral areas. That's God's job. That's between you and God. But what I am going to do is I'm going to give you some questions to consider that I pray will help provide some biblical discernment for you as you consider exercising whatever Christian liberty it is uh, that, that you want to exercise. So here's a list of questions to consider um, when it comes to exercising Christian liberties. Number one, is this action sinful? Is it sinful? I mean, in other words, if what you're considering actually isn't really actually a question of Christian liberty, uh, if God's already spoken on the issue, then don't act on it. Okay, that's kind of the obvious one. It, you can't justify sin no matter which way you slice it. If God's already spoken on it, just don't do it. Number two, will this action violate my conscience? My conscience. Interesting, because we didn't really talk about this a ton. We were talking about other people's consciences. But in Romans 14, 23, it says, but if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, or insert Christian liberty here, you are sinning if you go ahead and do it. For you are not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. So there's something about sinning against your own conscience. Next question. Will this action cause another believer to stumble? Will it cause another believer to stumble? 
Romans 14, 13 says, Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. Fourth question. Will this action hurt my testimony? Will it hurt my testimony? Colossians 4, 5 says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Look, the reality is sometimes exercising your Christian liberties is actually going to help you advance the gospel. And there's other times exercising your Christian liberties is going to cause you to hinder the advancement of the gospel. And so we got to use discernment. Before engaging in certain activities, we need to consider like the unbelievers in the room who may be watching us, right? And then finally, will this action give God glory? Will this action give God glory? 1 Corinthians 10.31, so Paul's going to talk about this actually just a few chapters uh, from where we are right now. He's going to kind of touch base on it again. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of the Lord. That's the end of the day, right? No matter what you're doing, like take into account Jesus and giving him glory. Because church, at the end of the day, the purpose for having liberty in Christ, we can't forget this, is to bring glory to Christ. And so therefore, as far as it depends on us, let us make every effort to do exactly that. You guys want to give glory to Jesus? Amen? Let's do that together. And so as I, as I close, you know, I, I mentioned this morning, um, or I mentioned earlier that the Christian life is a liberating life. And that's true. There's, there's nothing more liberating than living your life for Jesus. However, you cannot live a liberated life for Jesus until you've given your life to Jesus. How many of you guys could testify to that? That's the first step. And so, friends, I, I want to, if that's you, if you've never given your life to Jesus, give me 37 more seconds of your time. And listen closely. The Bible teaches that all of us are slaves to sin. In fact, you might think you're living a free life, but you're not. You're shackled by sin. Sin is deceitful. In fact, it's sin that separates you from God, yet God, in his great love for you, became a man in Jesus. And died on a cross, taking the punishment for your sins upon himself. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, and in doing so, provided the way to free you from the shackles of sin, receive forgiveness, be saved, and have eternal life. Jesus said in John 8, 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will what? Be free indeed. And so, friend, if you want to be free from the power and penalty of sin, if you want to leave here having the assurance of eternal life and start living your life for Jesus, all you must do, the first step is just to repent of your sin, asking God to forgive you, and believe in the person and work of Jesus. Believe what he did on that cross, and when he rose from the grave, was more than enough to pay for your sins. And when you do that, the Bible teaches that you will be saved. And if you have any questions about what that means, or if you want, to, uh, want some clarification on what it means to, to become a believer and receive eternal life and start living for Jesus, you can mark it on your Connect slip. You could talk to me after the uh, service. You could talk to Pastor Dave after the service. You could probably talk to Pastor Dan. He's in the Samaritan's uh, uh, Purse shirt, as are many other people. Find anybody in the Samaritan's Purse church, and they'll point you in some kind of direction. But anyway, don't leave here if you've got questions about your own salvation. So that being said, I'm going to invite the praise team to come forward. We're going to pray wrap our morning up. Father God, I want to thank you for your faithfulness. I want to thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for this topic, Lord. It's not something that we were able to address very often, but the beauty of just working through a book of scripture is that things come up, God, that we get to talk about and see your thoughts on. And 
Lord, it is my prayer that as, as we live our free lives for you, that we would live them in such a way that at the end of the day, we want to glorify you with our actions. Help our, our motivations to be in check. And God, we admit that in the flesh, we cannot do it by ourselves. We can only do it through the power of Jesus Christ in us. And so, Lord, as we close, that is our prayer. That in all things that we do, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Grace Bible Church. For more information about our church and our ministries, you can visit gracebiblepa.com.